You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, we're in Romans 11 this morning. Okay, we've been making our way through Romans 9 through 11 this fall, and you know, if you thought, okay, let's get to Romans 11, maybe it'll get easier. Well, it's not necessarily easier as far as maybe some of the things that are said or are difficult for us to understand. But to kind of give us the big picture here, uh, again, let's remember Paul is addressing the issue as to why Israel is not being saved. If, if, if the Gentiles now are a part of this salvation story, are we even, even a part of God's family anymore? What's, this, what's going on? And this is what he's been talking about. Chapter 9 really emphasizes the fact that God is the one who chooses. God is the one who elects people to be his people. And he starts off by saying, look, Abraham's family, there's different sons, but it's Isaac that's chosen. And, and then out of Isaac's kids, it's Jacob that's chosen. And, and even as he starts to trace through Israel's history, he shows that sometimes he will harden, sometimes he will be merciful. And really, ultimately, by the time you're done, chapter 9, there could be no mistake that salvation is from God alone. And then you get into chapter 10, and he, and he starts talking about their responsibility, Israel's responsibility. If you want to, you know, if you're thinking about this whole drama that's being played out. It's like the, the camera angle's changed, right? There, there's the viewpoint is from the Lord and what the Lord has done in chapter 9. And then chapter 10 is like, salvation's right here. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we end in chapter 10 where, where, where God says, I've held out my hand all the day long to an obstinate, stubborn people. As we go into chapter 11... He's going to sum up everything that he's been talking about. He's really been focusing on the past, the, the, the present of Israel. But he's going to shift now, as we, by, before we get to the end of the chapter, to the future of Israel. What is their future? What will it look like? Has God rejected his people? He's going to start again in chapter 11. He's going to talk about it. Has God rejected his people? And as we, as Gentiles, I think probably the majority of us here are Gentiles, as we look at this, what can we be learning about their salvation. I think it's fascinating to just stop and think about the nation of Israel, right? Abraham comes along. God says, I will make a nation through you. I will make a people through you. And ultimately, we know that salvation comes through that people. That's where Christ came through, that, that line. And as Paul's writing this, this is about 58 AD as he's writing this letter. And the question is legitimate. For the Jewish people, has God forsaken us? As, is, are we truly the people of God anymore? If the Gentiles get in now too, like how is this all going to work? And then you think about the last 2,000 years of history, 70 AD, what happens? The temple torn down, burnt, not one stone left upon the other. It's, it's destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. And, and the people are scattered about for like a decade or how long was that? Like 1,900 years. They're, 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 they're scattered about. They're, they're, the people remain, 
but, but not together. And in 1948, after the atrocities that happened in World War II, they are granted a nation in 1948. And so for, you know, for less who were born after 1948, are like, oh yeah, of course there's a nation of Israel. But like, to think about this in, in the, hist- like the, the scope of history, we should not take it for granted that there is a nation of Israel today. But the fact that there is highlights that God is always faithful to his promises. God has a plan for Israel still. We're going to see that plan as we study chapter 11. But I think this is helpful as we think about the nation of Israel and what God has promised concerning them. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. Let me just read this. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, he who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all that they have done, declares the Lord. What a promise. It's really setting us up for what we're going to be studying this morning. That last statement there, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth below be searched out will I reject the descendants of Israel because of all that they have done. What have they done? They've walked in rebellion against God over and over and over and over again. But he's like, you know what? I will never reject my people. There will always be descendants. There is always going to be a remnant that are going to be my people. And we're going to see as we get to the end of chapter 11 that one day the nation of Israel will look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will repent and they will believe on him. This is a fascinating story of salvation of Israel. And you and I as Gentiles can learn a whole lot by we, as, as we study and look at them. So we're going to be doing that this morning. Before we do, let me pray for us and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are faithful. God, we, we see that in the way that you have um, dealt with your people Israel. And God, despite their rebellion over and over and over again, God, you've remained faithful. God, you who are sovereign, God, have continually preserved a remnant for your namesake. And God, we know that one day, perhaps one day soon, Lord, the nation of Israel will repent when they see you. When they see the one whom they have pierced, it tells us in Zechariah, Lord, they will repent as a nation. God, what an awesome day that will be. God, we thank you that you are a God who still saves. And this morning, as those who were apart from Israel, God, we're, we're so thankful that it was your good plan of salvation, not to just save the people of Israel, but God, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who has not believed on you, who's, who's not understood who Christ is and, and believed that salvation is through Christ alone, God, today, that you would show them that truth God, I thank you that um, it is by grace that we are saved. Lord, you get the glory and you alone. 
And God, as we study this text this morning, again, we're, we're going to be pressed. We're going to, um, there's going to be some things that we're going to find difficult to understand. But God, I pray that by your spirit, you just lead us and guide us. That by the time we're done this morning studying these 10 verses, that God, uh, we would worship you. Uh, Lord, you are worthy of our worship. So Lord, have your way in us this morning. God, lead this preacher for your glory, for your honor. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Hebrews, or sorry, Hebrews, Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, just put up your hand, and the ushers will be happy to get you a copy of God's Word. We want to be able to look at it for ourselves together this morning. So Romans chapter 11 and verses 1 through 10. Let me read it. It says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And the way in which God worked out salvation for Israel is instructive for us today, there's three redemptive truths that we need to take heed to this morning. Three redemptive truths, three eternal truths as we consider the way that God continually works out salvation. Uh, first, we see that he still sovereignly calls. God still sovereignly calls. He begins by saying, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's, he's not just summing up the previous verse. He's really summing up the, this section from from Romans 9, 30 to now. He's, he's, he's kind of wrapping up. So what's the conclusion based on what we've seen? Has God rejected his people? Well, the verse previous was like, I, I held out my hand all the day long to an obstinate, stubborn people. The answer is obvious. And he, he says emphatically once again, by no means. God has not rejected his people. And he gives four different proofs, three, four different witnesses as to the fact that God has not rejected his people. While Israel has been unfaithful, God has been faithful over and over and over again. First, he shows a firsthand witness. Paul himself is a firsthand witness of the fact that God has not rejected his people. Note, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Do you want proof that God has not rejected his people? Well, I'm an Israelite. 
I'm you. I'm part of the people. If, 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 if God has rejected his people, then I would not be saved today. But I myself am an, Israel, Israel, uh, uh, sorry, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and the specific tribe that he was from was from the tribe of Benjamin, who is the, probably the most famous Benjamite. Anybody remember from the Old Testament? Saul, right? King Saul. What was his name before he came to faith? Saul, right? So that's, that's his heritage. His family is proud of the heritage. And God saves this guy who was formerly named of Saul. This guy who made it his life's mission to kill Christians, to have them imprisoned. The guy who was watching Stephen get stoned and be like, yeah, this is really good. And not only does he watch that horror and see what happens and see even just the, the incredible way that Stephen laid down his life for the Lord, right? Like just, he, he, he wasn't fighting. He wasn't, he was just, he preached an amazing sermon and they stoned him and he looked up and said, I see the Lord, right? And that was, and he's seen all that and his heart remained hardened, right? And, and that didn't discourage him and said it only encouraged him. He's like, now I want to go get more of these guys. So please send me to Damascus. And we know, of course, on the road to Damascus, the Lord saves him. And he's like, look, I am a firsthand witness of the fact that God still calls the people of Israel. He still saves the people of Israel. Boaz says this, if Paul were the only Jew on earth who believed in Jesus Christ, it would be proof positive that God has not rejected his people. Now, as we go through these verses, it's really important to understand, to think about this. Everyone is destined for hell of the people of Israel. Everyone has walked in rebellion against him. The difference between a guy like Paul and the rest of Israel is what? God intervened. God was the one who called them out of it. If he had not called them out of it, he would, maybe, you know, maybe he would have been in the, the Israelite books, like, you know, look at all the persecution he did. What a great guy, right? But we know that God had a different plan for him. So first, there's the first-hand witness. Second, we see a faithful witness. The faithful witness is God himself. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The fact that God still calls people, the God that the God elects people is based on him, his character, the God who never changes, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The, the fact that in 2021 people are being called, people are being saved, is a testimony to who he is. Again and again, he's showing in this book of Romans that just to be born an Israelite did not save you. I mean, how many times has he said that? And he's showing this again. But he's saying, listen, in the midst of these people, I have my people. I have those whom I have foreknown. Schreiner says this, God has not rejected his people upon whom he set his covenantal love and favor. It, this whole statement is, is, is super contradictory, right? I have not rejected a people. Is it possible for God to reject a people whom he has foreknown? And the answer should be obvious. It's not possible. I'll just look back to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
This is really affirming for you and I who are in Christ today. If he has foreknown you, if he has chosen you, as it says in other texts, before the foundation of the world, can you be assured that he will never reject you? Well, let's look at Romans 8, 28, 20, uh, uh, sorry, Romans 8, 29, 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be, born, be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all put together. So from the foreknowing to the glorification, it is all his. God is the one who does it. And so if he has known you before the foundation of the world, then he will guarantee you that you will be glorified someday. It's all a work of God. It is impossible for God to both have a plan in which you will be glorified and one in which he would reject you. It's, it's just common sense, right? This word uh, for foreknew, so the, the word is uh, gnosko. You know, I mean, that's probably butchered that. I, I, it's Greek, okay? But, but it's to know personally, intimately. And, and this word for, for uh, foreknow, it's, it's pro. It's a, he knew before. Mu puts it like this. The temporal prefix for indicates further that God's choosing of Israel took place before any action or status on the part of Israel that might have qualified her for God's choice. How could God reject a people whom he, in a gracious act of choice, had made his own? Right? If he has graciously made you his own before you had done anything, it's ridiculous to think that he would then also reject you. This is his point that he's making here. Psalm 94, 14. Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So God has not and does not reject the people that he has set his covenant love upon. It is impossible for him to do so due to his nature and his character. God still sovereignly calls. And those whom he calls, he will never reject. And that's a good word for all of us here this morning. This word is specifically for the people of Israel, but as we've already seen Romans 8, we are also benefactors of the fact that our God, when he calls you, he will get you to the end. Those, he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. Isn't that encouraging this morning? Knowing that it's not up to us. And anything that I might do, it's only up to him and his sovereignty. So there's the first-hand witness, Paul himself, the faithful witness, God, who he is. Thirdly, we see a former witness. Just look in our past, Israel. He says, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul expects his readers to understand. He's, he's, he's talking directly to the people of Israel. So he's like, you guys know the story of Elijah. You know our history. When Israel was killing its prophets, 
Not some other nation, not some rogue nation coming in and doing this, but Israel itself who had turned to idolatry. The, the section of Scripture that he's addressing specifically here is 1 Kings 19. In 1 Kings 18, we, we all know the story, right, of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. It's been, hasn't rained for three and a half years. And he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal. There's like 800 prophets of Baal and Elijah. And he's like, hey, let's just see who's God's real here. Okay, so you guys go ahead and you make a little sacrifice and you call upon your God and you see if he calls fire down. And then I will do the same. And of course we know what happens. God is faithful. God is powerful. Yahweh is powerful. He shows that. And the prophets of Baal have destroyed. Great victory. Then what happens? Ahab's wife, Jezebel, hears about what's happened. And he, sorry, she threatens his life. And Elijah flees. He runs. He runs into the wilderness. And he's discouraged. And God who is a loving, compassionate, understanding God. He comes alongside him, ministers to him through an angel, gives him sustenance. And then he goes, he, he, he goes on a journey for 40 days and 40 nights. So many parallels to so many things. But 40 days, 40 nights, goes to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. The same place where the Ten Commandments were given. And God meets him here on the mountain. That sets up the scene for what he's quoting here. He's discouraged. He feels like he's the only one left. He says in 1 Kings 19.10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He says this in verse 10. He says it again in verse 14. I'm it, Lord. You ever felt like that? Like you're the last one? No one else around? He's, he's lonely. He's discouraged. He feels like this is it. I, I, I'm the last one. And Jezebel, I mean, she's so wicked. She probably is going to make this happen. And then there'll be no one left. Well, how does God reply? Note the wording. It says, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. Was it like 7,000 of the, like, you know, they were just really good people, righteous people, and they were like, oh, that's wrong. We have to keep doing the right thing. We're good people. Is that how that happened? No, he says, I have kept for myself. God chose out of the wicked nation of Israel who had rejected him as the king of their nation, who had rejected him as their, as their deliverer and had turned to Baal and all the wickedness that went along with that. He said, out of those people, I've chosen 7,000, a remnant. God chose. God initiated. And as a result, there was a remnant spared. 1 Samuel 20, 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. 
in the midst of rebellion against God and His Word and rejection of Him being their covenant God, instead of abandoning Israel to their destruction, which is what they deserved, God remained faithful by preserving a remnant. And we, if you were to continue to read on in 1 Kings 19, He kept that remnant and the rest what were judged. Many were killed. So God is faithful, even when his people are unfaithful. We've seen a firsthand witness, a faithful witness, a former witness, and then we see a firm witness. Verse 5. So too, he says, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Just as he said in 58 AD, as he's writing this, there is still a people, a remnant of the Jewish people who have placed their faith in him. We could say the same in 2021. There are still Jewish people who have come to faith, right? They, they, it, it, and and I, you hear story after story. It's like, how, how did we miss it? We had it all along. How could we not see? How could we be so blinded? But they, by God's grace, have come to faith. And so he's saying, just as, just as you've seen back then, we see now, present day. God is still faithful to his promises to his people. And there's coming a day. As we've already talked about this morning, there's coming a day when the whole nation of Israel will come to faith. Right now, they're really rich, a lot of them, right? The people of Israel. It's a really wealthy nation. It's doing really well. But in their doing really well, they have continued to reject God. They have not recognized that it is only by God's grace that they have anything. They have missed it. But one day, they will be saved. Why? Because of God's grace. Because of God's mercy. We think about the Jewish people being saved in, in, the, in these days, of Paul's days. We know that there's 3,000 came to faith on the day of Pentecost. You get to Acts 4.4, that we read that there were 5,000 men at the church at that time. So it would be, in addition to that, there would be women and children, Jewish people. As you go uh, through the book of Acts, you see Paul's missionary journeys, you see he would go to the synagogues and what? Some would be saved, right? And then they'd get really angry and he was no longer welcome in synagogue, right? And they would then turn to the Gentiles. But there was always a remnant being saved. So too today. God is faithful. It is a, it is, the fact that there, there are people of Israel getting saved today is, is a witness of the fact that God is faithful to his promises. Schreiner says this, God has not abandoned Israel even though the majority have disregarded the gospel. For he has maintained a remnant of believing Jews by reserving them for himself via his electing grace. It was the same in 58 AD as it is today, 2021. God is faithful. As we study the rest of the chapter, again, we're going to see that just as he has been faithful the last 4,000 years to the nation of Israel, he will save the nation of Israel We'll be looking at that in the weeks to come. So, has God rejected his people? Nope. He's not. He could have. Let's be honest. If you and I were in his position, we would have. Done. How many times do I have to put up my hand and you guys slap it down? Done. I'm done, right? You're just a rebellious, wicked people. Over which is like our story, 
right? Like, as we think about God's election, may we, may we worship him as a result of that. Not be like, well, I don't know, is this fair? I don't know, like I'm trying to, th- what's fair is that we would all go to hell. That would be fair. But God is more than fair. He is gracious and compassionate, which leads us to our second thing. Three redemptive truths that we can take heed to this morning. He still graciously saves. He still graciously saves. Going back to verse 5 again. So too at the present time there's a remnant. How? How is there a remnant? Chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I love this, the simplistic way he's breaking this down. Like, do you, do you get it? Like, like I've only, you know, if we're, we've been studying Romans for a while now, but this is the nail he keeps hitting over and over and over and over again. Why? Why, why does he keep doing this over and over and over again? Because we're slow to hear. Right? We, we like, yeah, 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 grace. Okay, I just got to work really hard. And then, you know, God's going to be pleased with me. No. It is only by grace. It's not by man's efforts. Ever. Ever. Salvation cannot be earned. A person can never do enough good works to be made right with God. Despite what Israel believed, just being a descendant of Abraham did not save you. Did not make you special in, in the sense of God, like, oh, okay, your sins are not a big deal, but the Gentile sins are. Like, no, you still needed to place your faith in God if you were to be made right with him. It had been this way all along, and he's been showing them that and taking them back to the Old Testament over and over again. In order for salvation to become a reality, a person needs to first understand that they can do nothing in their own efforts to be made right with God. Do you hear that this morning? If you would be saved, you must come empty before God. You're not saying, like, look at all the stuff I'm bringing. He's like, then don't come. You you have nothing. There, There is no reason, earthly reason, that God would choose us. We have all walked in rebellion against Him. And so if anyone would be saved here this morning, you must come first understanding that you are helpless before him as far as you are concerned. There's no works, there's no, there no descendancy that, that works for your favor. And in that helplessness, then there's hope. When we come to an end of ourselves, there's hope. And as we open our eyes, as God opens our eyes to see who Christ is and what he has done, when we had no hope for salvation, when we were still walking in rebellion against, us, against the Lord God, he sent his son to die in our behalf. He became the substitute for us. He lived the perfect life you and I have not been able to do. And in his perfection, he was hung upon a cross. And as he's on the cross, God places our sins upon his son. And then the wrath of God is poured out on him. 
He becomes the substitute. If there is no substitute, then there is no hope. And he pays the price. He dies. He, he pays the price for sin, which is death. But in showing us that he is the victor, he rose again on the third day. He has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's defeated Satan. This is the way to salvation. Anyone who believes this, that God took on flesh, that Jesus is God, that he rose again, as we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Nothing of us, all of him, all of him. From man's perspective, that's what we need to do. From God's perspective, he's like, I got this. The choosing took place when? When did God choose you? Before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, who saved us, God who saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begun. Before the ages begun. For his purpose, his grace. Who can know the mind of our Lord? We're going to get to this at the end of the chapter, but, but who can know, who can understand these things? Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every special, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The choosing came about by God's grace. Schreiner says this, The existence of a remnant of believing Jews is not ultimately ascribed to their greater wisdom or nobility, or to their free will, or to their spiritual perception. The inclusion of the remnant in God's people is due to His electing grace. Many worried that the choosing of some and not all would be unjust. But this idea overlooks the fact that election is gracious. No one deserves to be elected. And thus the election of any is a merciful gift of God that cannot be claimed as a democratic right. It's all his grace. And I get it. It's hard. It's hard to understand, like, okay, how does that work? Let us trust in he who is so much greater, so much more powerful than us, that he understands and that there is no injustice with him in this doctrine. Chosen by grace. I love this. But if it is by grace, guess what? It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The electing of God is a mystery. But listen, it is a fact. Right? You cannot deny it. It's all through the Bible. So it's a mystery, and it may be hard for us to grasp, but let us understand it is a fact. He, in his wisdom, has chosen a remnant to be saved. It came about how? Because God is a gracious and merciful God, not on the basis of works, 
Again, a nail that he keeps hammering over and over again. Because why? Because the Jews believed that their heritage and their works would save them. Just as you and I can be tempted to believe as well. Even post-Christ, right? He's stating what is obvious. If it's based on works, then guess what? It's no longer grace. It's based on works, then what? If it's based on works, then I'm just getting what I deserve, right? Here I am, here's my works, give me my payment. If it's based on that, then, then, then guess what? There's no grace involved. Grace is undeserved favor. And so if it's based on works, then guess what? It's not about undeserved favor, it's about I, my works. It's like oil and water, grace and works. You get that? They don't go together when it comes to salvation. We do not get saved by our works. It is only by grace. They cannot go together. Chosen by grace. God's initiative excludes ours. His initiative excludes ours. So we think about God's grace towards Israel. We can be confident that all that he says will take place. If God is in charge, if it's not about the whims of people and whether they do something or don't do something, if God is the one who's sovereign over all, then guess what? There is no doubt about whether or not his promises will be fulfilled. We can be confident in that fact. He is the one who takes the initiative. And humanity... As humanity, sorry, we are dead in our sins and unable to do anything to be made right with God. But, get, but what? Praise God, he still graciously saves. He's the one who does it. He's the one who looks down at sinners like you and I and says, I've chosen you. You now will be my child. How incredible. How awesome is our God. Because God is a gracious God, His promises to Israel will be fulfilled, and His promises to you and I as Gentiles will also be fulfilled. Moose says this, By God's gracious intervention, we can be transformed from sinners doomed to die into righteous people destined for eternal life. Praise God that He still graciously saves. Three redemptive truths that we need to take heed to this morning. He still sovereignly calls. He still graciously saves. And then the last one, he still judiciously hardens. He still judiciously hardens. You know, as we've been going through the book of Romans, especially these chapters, we see that there are two sides of this. God's electing grace, but also his judgment against sin. He says in verse 7, what then? What, what, what is the conclusion of all these things? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Again, thinking about the big picture and what we've been reading in Romans chapter 9 for Romans chapter 10. Those who fail to obtain, attain it, those who are trying to be made right with God apart from Christ. Those who were trying to be made right with God apart from faith, those are the ones who missed it. But the elect, God, those are the ones who God chose, they obtained it. Missing it, Romans 10.3 says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
Why, were they, why did they miss it? It's because they kept thinking that they could be made right with God on their own. They failed to obtain what they were seeking to be made right with God. But, it says, the elect obtained it. This remnant that he's been talking about all along. This hardening that he talks about here. The rest were hardened. The majority were hardened. It says in Romans 9, 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God, who is sovereign over salvation, is able to give grace and mercy to whoever he wants to, and he's also able to harden whomever he will. There's a mystery to this, isn't there? There's a little bit of a mystery to this. As we see, as we'll see in verse 25, sometimes God removes the hardening. There's hardened for a time, as we're going to see for the nation of Israel, but we'll find as we turn to Romans 11:25 that, we, that they, the hardening will be removed and then they will be saved. And by God's grace, he does that in some people's lives. There's that hardening there, but then he removes it. But then for others, we see that there's the hardening there and they remain hardened. And we read in the scriptures over and over again that for some, the hardening is done. There is no more grace. There is no more opportunity for salvation. And that hardening happens not at my deathbed, but earlier in my life. We know for Pharaoh that he hardened his heart and then God hardened it as well. And as you go through the scriptures, I, I was unable to find anyone who hadn't already hardened their heart that God hardened. In case you're wondering about like the whole justice thing here, right? And I think this is such a warning for anyone here who thinks they can keep putting off repentance. Keep thinking like, yeah, later in my life, I'll get things made right with God. Do not presume upon the grace of God. Do not presume that you can, at your own will, in your own timing, be made right with God. Listen to the warning of the scripture here that he will harden his people. And then there is no more opportunity for salvation. We don't know whom God has hardened. There are some deathbed confessions, right? They're, you know, like rebelled against God for 80 years and, and in their last weeks, days even, they come to faith. But we also know a lot who do not. They're as bitter and angry against God as they ever were. And in fact, some who, who were exposed to the gospel over and over again, we see the most hardened, do we not? The most antagonistic against God and his faith and, and Christianity and the gospel. This hardening, we, we need to understand that the text, what the text says is true. Bruce says this, such inward insensitiveness is divinely inflicted as a judicial penalty for a refusal to heed the word of God. 
someone hears the gospel, someone hears the truth and does not repent, a hardening may come. Talking about unbelievers, Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 says this, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Christ, when he walked this earth, he's seen the hardness of heart over and over again. There was a man who he wanted to heal and he asked, is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? And guess what? Everyone was silent. Nobody wanted to say anything. It says in Mark 3, 4, and 5, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Hebrews 3 warns us, verses 7 to 9, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. If you harden your heart, do not think that grace can be found later. The warning is found in these two verses that, um, that, that uh, actually, well, there's actually three verses that he's quoting from here. Moose says this, God's hardening permanently binds people in their sin that they have chosen for themselves. It's an important statement. God's hardening permanently binds people in their sin that they have chosen for themselves. So we see Paul here first quoting from Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4 in verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Isaiah 29 says this, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your, your heads, the seers. He's made it so that you cannot repent anymore. And again, you think about the timing of these things. They had been warned as a people over and over and over again, if you do not repent, this will happen. And at some point, God says, you will no longer have the opportunity to repent. You're just going to hear of the judgment to come, and you will be blinded to that fact, and then the judgment will come. Not only did he quote, quote from the prophets, but he also quoted from the book of the law, Deuteronomy 29.4, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. They had witnessed God's provision of, of redemption and freeing them from the people of Egypt, and yet, despite seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, their hearts were hard against God and they would turn to false idols, false gods. And as a result, other than, than Joshua and Caleb, they did not enter the promised land. They never did turn to him as they ought to. Psalm, then he turns to one more time. So he's, he's quoted both from the prophets. If you don't believe me, look at the prophets. If you don't believe me, look at the law. Now, if you don't believe me, look at the Psalms. Psalm 69, 22 and 23 is where he's quoting from here. And it says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
There's a lot of debate about the different words here and what is exactly, what's the table and what's the bending of the backs and, and, and a lot of speculation. But I, first of all, just to help us to understand why he's using this psalm, this is a, another messianic type psalm. Yes, David was praying these things. He was calling out for these things against his enemies in his day. But ultimately, this can be parallel to Christ and his enemies. So this is why he quotes it. All those who've rejected the gospel, this is what he would say. Musa says, what David prayed would happen to his persecutors. Paul suggests God has brought upon those Jews who have resisted the gospel. It says, let their table become a snare. What's the table? Well, it's their table. It's the Jewish table. The things that they have placed their security in. Things that they have placed their safety in. Their well-being in. This is what it's talking about. And what have they trusted in? They've trusted in their own works. In their being a religious people set apart for God. They've trusted in the outward instead of having a change of heart. And as a result, it has become a snare and a trap for them. Christ has become the stumbling block for them. And they will pay the consequences for rejecting salvation through Christ. This rejection of Christ results in a continual blindness of the truth. And I think the bending of the backs, it's that burden that they bear, the the burden of, of, of of paying for their own sins. They've trusted in something that cannot save. And as a result, they will be judged. MacArthur says this, Many people trust in the very things that damn them. Many people trust in the very things that damn them. May these verses be a warning for us this morning. Do not think that you can wait a lifetime to repent, to get around to salvation when it's convenient for you. You who have hard a heart this morning, I'm praying that God would soften your heart even today, that you would find salvation today, that God would give you fear of him today, to, to know that your time may be almost out for salvation, and that your eyes will then never be opened, that you will be in a stupor, as it put here, as you'll be blind. Do not think that you can play games with God. It should be a great warning to think, what am I putting my trust in this morning? What am I putting my hope in each day? Is it becoming a snare for me? Is it a trap for me? Will it wind up in being in my damnation? Am I, am I holding on to my security and my blessing and my own works? How would you answer that this morning? What are you putting your trust in? If you're putting your trust in anything other than Jesus Christ, then it is a snare. It is a trap. And may you be warned of that this morning and forsake those things and put your trust in him and him alone for salvation. 
so much that we can learn from the nation of Israel as we look at God's plan for them. He still graciously saves. He still sovereignly calls people today. But he still judiciously hardens. May we be encouraged by the fact that as we leave this place, as we talked about last Sunday, that if we herald the gospel, that there are still people who will be saved. Why? Because God graciously saves still. He still has his elect on this earth. How do we know that? Because he's not returned yet. May we sound out the word of warning to those who have heard the gospel over and over again. Do not harden your hearts. Come to faith today. Rush to the Savior. Cling to him today before it's too late. We're reminded of the mercy of the Lord as we think about him holding out. He says in, in Romans 10, 21, all day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But there is a time limit on that. And the time limit isn't necessarily your death. This is what we need to be warned of this morning. And so let us come to him in repentance. Let us embrace his amazing grace. Again, I, I'm praying that's the takeaway this morning. As we think about these things, you're not kind of walking out of here like, man, I can't believe he hardens people. Well, you should be walking away with like, I can't believe he still graciously saves people of whom he has chosen me. Why, I will never understand. But praise God, he chose me. And I want to serve him for all of my days. I'm praying that's where your hearts are at this morning. And I think even in this process of sanctification, let us just be checking our hearts this morning. God, is there any hardness of heart coming about in my life? Am I, am I coming cold to your word? God, help me to see that. If there be any sinful way in me, God, God, reveal that to me. I want to be soft before you. I, I want to be walking by your spirit, not according to my flesh. God, help me. God, help me. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this truth this morning. That God, you are the author of salvation. From the first of it to the last. God, every part of salvation is by your grace. And so God, we praise you for that this morning. God, we know as a people left to ourselves, we would have walked in rebellion against you. We would have remained hardened against you if you had not called us. God, thank you that you have saved us this morning. And God, I would pray for anyone here who is yet to call on Christ for salvation. God, today, may they call on your name and be saved before it's too late. God, we know so many people who as of yet, Lord, even though they have heard the truth, Lord, they have not been saved. God, would you save them? God, would you be merciful? Would you be gracious? God, we know that we deserve judgment. But God, thank you that you have been merciful. 
God, help us to take that message out to the world. Help us to herald that truth that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. God, may those truths never become dull in our hearts. May we forever rejoice in our salvation. It's your name we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.